Shalom, and welcome to Israel Policy Pod, where we're locking down our homes and not our democratic institutions, where we're using our phones to reach out to friends and family, not to track the movements of fellow citizens, and where the only March madness is Israeli politics, because college basketball, like anything else you might have enjoyed, except of course this podcast, is canceled. And here at Israel Policy Pod, the show goes on. I'm your host, Evan Gottesman. From tracking Israeli cell phones to sharply limiting the activities of the Knesset, the intersection of Israel's political crisis and the public health crisis mean that Israel's problem today is both coronavirus and constitutional. This leads us to one overarching question. Is that legal? To help us address that question as it applies to basically everything going on in Israel right now, we're joined by Joshua Shoffman. He served as the Deputy Attorney General for Legislation in the Israeli Ministry of Justice from 1995 to 2008. Before that, he was a litigator in the High Court of Justice Division of the State Attorney's Office, the legal director of the Association for Civil Rights in Israel, and an officer in the Legal Counsel and Legislation Department of the Military Advocate General Corps. Joshua, thanks for joining us. Good talking to you, Evan. First of all, how are things in Israel right now? How are you dealing with the whole coronavirus situation? Well, you know, the country is in virtual lockdown and people are quite stressed like everywhere else. Aside from the health concerns, there are far-reaching economic problems with over 100,000 people already applying for unemployment benefits and various businesses collapsing or on the verge of folding, especially in the tourism industry and, and some others. And it's, it's obviously very problematic. People are concerned, but you know, people are trying to make the most of it. And, and right now, uh, it's an hour before Shabbat here and as we're talking, and people are organizing impromptu Kabbalot Shabbat from their porches around the country and because most of the synagogues are not going to be operating tomorrow. So on a personal level, we're managing just fine. The only major problem for us is that we can't see our grandkids for a while, but we're, we're doing just fine. Oh, well, that's good to hear in light of all of the circumstances. And as you, as you touched upon, like everywhere else, people just trying to get by. I want to jump into our topic today. There have been a lot of questions about the validity of different actions that the Israeli government has undertaken in the past couple of days, as we alluded to in the intro. But the government that Prime Minister Netanyahu leads right now is a transitional or a caretaker government. No coalition has actually been formed since the 2015 elections. Are there any limitations on what a caretaker government can and can't do? Well, our basic laws don't put any limitations as such on a caretaker government. The government has the full powers of any other government. But over the years, the case law has stated consistently that caretaker government has a legal obligation to exercise self-restraint and not make any major decisions that have far-ranging, far-reaching effect unless, unless they're urgent and have to be made right then. Clearly, the dealings with the coronavirus crisis are come under the the category of urgent decisions. So the government can really do whatever is needed right now. Other decisions like making appointments to senior offices and appointing judges, things like that, are put on hold. And, you know, usually the caretaker government is a matter of a few weeks, but now we've been going on like this for about a year and caused a serious problem. But when the government has tried to overstep these limits, like certain decision that was made right before the elections, clearly for electoral purposes, and more than that, then the Supreme Court 
gave an interim order and stopped it until new elections were held. Do the restrictions that have been developed in the case law impact major national decisions? For example, something like West Bank annexation. We saw just this week Likud member of Knesset Megolan filed an annexation bill, uh, which ironically can't be voted on because Knesset Speaker Yuli Edelstein, who is like Megolan, a member of the Likud party, has been really curbing the activities of the Knesset. We'll come back to what Edelstein is doing later. Well, that's exactly the kind of thing that a caretaker government should not be doing. And I don't expect any major decisions on matters of annexation and the like until a coalition is formed. I wouldn't get too upset about bills that are tabled in the Knesset. Generally, the members of the Knesset on the first week of the session introduce hundreds, sometimes even thousands of private member bills. And even in the best of times, the Knesset doesn't get to them for months or, or, or more, or most of them, they don't, aren't even debated at all. So yes, the Knesset members can put anything they want onto the table, but nothing's really going to happen until there's a coalition. That makes sense. And hanging over all of this, and we've touched upon it earlier in this episode, is the coronavirus crisis. We can't ignore it. It's the specter that is impacting everything in Israel and all over the world. This is clearly an unprecedented kind of crisis. Are there any kind of emergency powers that a government in Israel can call upon in a crisis like this? And is there any kind of precedent for these sorts of special circumstances? Because, of course, Israel is a country that has dealt with many serious national crises before, like in wartime. Well, the government has actually far-reaching emergency powers, but those two have limitations. A state of emergency was declared in Israel in the first days of the state back in 1948 and has been enforced ever since. It's renewed by the Knesset uh, usually once a year. And those emergency powers allowed the government to issue emergency regulations, which have the force of law and they're valid for a period of up to uh, three months. These emergency regulations have been used over the years in a variety of circumstances. They were used during, for example, during the Yom Kippur War to issue very, very far-reaching regulations that limited all aspects of everyday life. They were used also in an economic emergency in 1985 to take immediate action to freeze prices. Usually they're used when it's not in wartime, Usually they're used as an interim uh, machinery to put regulations into effect until the Knesset can, can deal with it and actually make these changes in the law. Because the emergency regulations have the power to come in place of any other law. In other words, they have greater power than the laws that, that are on the books. However, there are significant limitations. One is, and this is very important right now, that they cannot limit the powers of the other branches of government. They can't limit the powers of, of the courts. They can't limit the powers of the Knesset. Another thing is that under our basic law on human dignity and freedom, any limitation of human dignity and freedom and those rights that are mentioned in, in the law, like the right of privacy, for example, has to be for a legitimate purpose and go no farther than necessary to meet the emergency. And these are subject to judicial review. The other limitation is that these regulations have to be brought immediately before a committee of the Knesset, and the Knesset can, in effect, remove or rescind these regulations by a majority vote in the plenum, 
or by passing a law which will take the place of the regulations. And of course, as I mentioned, they're temporary. In other words, if the government wants these regulations to be enforced for longer than three months, the government has to introduce a bill to extend them by law of the Knesset, which is passed like any other law. What we have right now is an unusual situation in which the regulations are issued in the time when the Knesset is not functioning as usual, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But it's interesting that over the past, say, 25 years, there has been almost no use of emergency regulations. Here, too, the court has said that tremendous restraint has to be made in issuing these kinds of regulations, and they can't be done as a matter of course. In the last 10 days, the government has used this power quite a few times, even in very mundane issues like allowing certain court hearings to be held by video conference and the like. And again, I expect these will all be replaced with, to the extent that they have, that these restrictions have to go on, they'll be replaced with actual legislation once the Knesset gets moving. One of the new regulations that has been adopted in this current crisis that has proven particularly controversial is a policy that permits the Shin Bet, the internal security service in Israel, to track citizens' mobile phones. Ostensibly, that's to prevent coronavirus carriers from going out when they should be quarantined. This was approved by the government without a Knesset vote. Now the Israeli high court has determined that this kind of move requires Knesset oversight, and you mentioned some of the mechanisms of oversight that the Knesset could undertake. What does Knesset oversight actually look like in this specific case? Well, the law requires that these regulations be placed before the appropriate Knesset committee, and at the time that the government promulgated these regulations, that committee didn't exist. So we have we have a real void here. That's what brought on the uh, Supreme Court action yesterday. Knesset oversight basically means that the government has to come before the Knesset committee, explain what's been done, explain why these measures are, are necessary. And like I said, the Knesset can rescind the regulations if it sees fit. They can also demand information about how these powers are used. The regulations you mentioned, by the way, even though the, the regulations can be for as long as three months, the regulations regarding the general security services were, were made for only 14 days. So in any event, the intention was to use it for a short time and then see if there's a need to, to have it extended. There were actually two sets of regulations. One allowed the police to use the cellular data to track people in quarantine. Those have been frozen entirely by the court. And the other is allowed the Shin Bet to use its technological abilities to actually find those people who were in contact with it, those who have been diagnosed or have tested positive for the virus. And those regulations will remain in force according to the court's decision only until Tuesday afternoon, and if the Knesset committee is not formed by then, they won't be able to be used at all. So the court has basically said, if you've been trying to pass these without adequate oversight, that's not going to work. It's going to, by Monday or Tuesday, you have to have the Knesset apparatus in place. Now, even after it comes before the Knesset, there is still ability to legally challenge those regulations on their own merits. And that hasn't been decided yet by the court. In other words, the court can rule 
these regulations, even if they do have Knesset oversight, overstep the limit of government ability to violate privacy rights in the interest of public health. And the court has successfully frozen the police policy. So do you have any concerns about the ability of the court to see its ruling on the Shin Bet policy enforced? At least until now. Court decisions of this kind are honored. I don't see any immediate danger of the court ruling one way and the government simply ignoring it, even though our justice minister, unfortunately, has, has gone so far as to say that not every court decision needs to be, be abided. I don't think we've gotten there yet, and I hope we never do. And again, the court's decision yesterday is an interim decision. And the way things work here is that petitions to the Supreme Court can be heard within a day or two. And the court hasn't slowed down its activities at all. So there is, at the moment, effective judicial oversight over the government's action. Moving from a question of judicial oversight back to legislative oversight or Knesset oversight, there's also a question of the Knesset's activities during this period, the ability to form a government who gets to serve on Knesset committees, forming and convening these committees, setting a legislative agenda. And as you mentioned, a majority of the Knesset plenum can vote to rescind emergency regulations. But the Knesset seems to kind of be in stasis right now. Knesset Speaker Yuli Edelstein, a member of Prime Minister Netanyahu's Likud party, is really limiting the Knesset's activities. He's cited health concerns about gathering all of the Knesset members for a vote. And of course, the Knesset plenum would be a gathering of more than 10 people. But critics accuse Edelstein of using this crisis and doing what he's doing in order to protect his position and to protect Prime Minister Netanyahu's. Is there any legal basis for what Edelstein is doing? The health ministry in this directive, quite rightly so, specifically exempted the Knesset and the court from those limitations of a gathering of 10 people. So I'm sure you know that the plenum hall is certainly big enough to hold more than 10 people and keep a very safe distance between one and another. It's not the same as holding a gathering of more than 10 people in a small room. So he definitely has the authority to adopt those regulations, uh, those health regulations, to fit with the role of the Knesset in maintaining its oversight even during this time of crisis. What the law says is that the organizing committee of the Knesset, when the new Knesset is elected, has to be appointed as soon as possible. And it's true, as he has said, that normally the makeup of that organizing committee is decided on by agreement between the major parties. But in this case, there was no agreement, and partly because of the demand that the committee not have more than 10 members. So it has to come up for a vote. And on Wednesday, he closed the session without bringing it up for a vote. But after the court intervened and after there was a public outcry and after the legal advisor to the Knesset said that he has no authority to put it off any longer, he's said that the uh, it will come up for a vote on Monday. It's not soon enough, but I'm hoping that by Monday, at least that issue will be largely resolved. The second question is when the Knesset will elect a new speaker. What the rules of the Knesset say is that a new speaker is elected any time between the initial swearing-in ceremony and when the government is sworn in. That can be a difference of a number of weeks. 
he has said that it makes sense to do it when the government is sworn in because then we know what the coalition looks like and it's a more appropriate time to decide who the Speaker of the Knesset is going to be. But under these circumstances, a majority of members of Knesset have officially approached the Speaker and said, we demand a vote right now. And under those circumstances, I don't think he has the leeway to say, no, I'm going to wait several weeks before that happens. And if he tries to, then like everything else, it's going to land in the Supreme Court, which is unfortunate. It's unfortunate that the the court has to intervene to require the Knesset to do what it clearly should be doing in any case. But we have a very, very unusual circumstance in which we have a health crisis together with a political crisis, together with a transitional government, which has been acting for over a year without the confidence of the Knesset. And all that together is definitely taking a toll on on the democratic system. As you mentioned, the confluence of all of these events is certainly unusual. In this coronavirus work-from-home environment, is there any kind of legal precedent for remote or electronic Knesset voting? There's no precedent for it, but it definitely is being considered now. For example, the swearing-in of the Knesset, which usually is done when all 120 members are in the room, was done this time with three members coming in each time and then leaving the room. There are clearly ways to do it. The debates themselves can certainly be held with the members watching from their own offices and coming in to give their speeches. There are ways around this. The feeling that the coronavirus crisis has been used also for political advantage is unavoidable. It, unfortunately, it definitely seems that that's the way things are going. And I just hope that the institutions that, that exist, both the legal institutions, the press, the public, are not going to allow that to happen. But let me just tell you something on the bright side, which is that when the government last night issued emergency regulations on lockdown, and which say that people are not allowed to leave their homes except for certain circumstances, like to buy food, to go to the pharmacy, and other things. It was added at the insistence of of the Attorney General, as as far as I know, that one of the exceptions is that people can leave their homes to demonstrate. That clearly was not something that that the leaders of the government proposed. It came from the the, the legal advisors, even though according to press reports, not all the ministers agreed last night, but that's what was decided. So that actually takes us to our next questions. There were protests yesterday over what the demonstrators see as the Israeli government's authoritarian lurch in light of recent events, and some demonstrators were even arrested. What was the basis for those arrests? And even with the new emergency regulations, what does political protest look like in the middle of a pandemic? What happened yesterday is certainly unfortunate. It started with the police stopping drivers on the road to Jerusalem, allegedly because they were driving too slowly, even though because of the lockdown, there was no real problem with the flow of traffic. And then when some of them did get to Jerusalem, they broke up the demonstration saying it was against the Ministry of Health directives. I, I can only hope that that was let's say, a misunderstanding. It was something that the police decided to do, thinking that they had the authority to do it. It's true that mass demonstrations with people in close contact are against the public health directives. That in itself is logical. But if people are going out in their cars, as some of them did with signs and black flags, there's no prohibition against that. If people come and 
form of vigil and keep the, the required distance between people. There's no reason to prevent that. And I think that once the matters come to the appropriate legal advisors, they'll give the police the, the appropriate guidance. The other thing is that, as you know, the public protest in today is not only going out to the streets, but it's through the press and social media, and those are very, very active today. And I think the public is being given a chance to say their piece. And we can only hope that it's not even a situation that we need to consider for too much longer, because a lot of the circumstances around this are the result of the coronavirus pandemic. So, Joshua, thank you for joining us, and thank you for sharing your insights and expertise. This really helps to clarify a lot of what's going on in Israel and what will pan out over the coming weeks. So we wish you good health in these difficult times, and thanks again for joining us. Good health to you and to all the listeners. And to our listeners, we know that many of your daily activities have been disrupted or are perhaps not advisable for the time being. But listening to Israel Policy Pod remains a safe, lockdown-proof activity, and we will be with you for the duration of this crisis and beyond, bringing you commentary and analysis on the situation in Israel. And if you enjoyed this program, please Leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Your support really helps keep us going. Thanks for tuning in. Stay healthy, and we'll catch you next time.